Hey guys, good to be back with you today. I'm here at my desk because, uh, again, I have, I'm 37 years old, but I have the back of a, you know, what, like a 73-year-old or whatever. Um, and let's see, what hat do I have on today? Let me look at the, oh yeah, today's the new, another new hat week, uh, splash hit. See, it's got the, uh, where's the camera? There we go. It's got the splash hit from, um, it's not AT&T Park anymore, it hasn't been, Oracle. Um, yeah, so also, just before we get into the uh, the text today, I want to remind you, we're doing our prayer meeting today at the Union Street uh, location there um, at 12.30, probably about 12.30 to, you know, just after 1. So we'd love to see you guys there. Um, so if you are watching this video and you barely have enough time to get over there, pause the video, watch it later, head over, um, we'll see you in just a few minutes. Um, and if you're watching this on Monday, you totally missed your chance, and we had an awesome prayer meeting yesterday. All right, um, today we're going to be reading a section... Um, we're, we're at the next part of the book of Luke, working our way through the book of Luke. But I'm actually going to do something a little bit different this time. Um, this uh, section, this, this story, um, is uh, written also in the book of Mark. And the way that Mark tells this story is one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. And Mark includes some details and um, some... Yeah, he just includes some stuff that Luke, I don't know why exactly, I kind of read up on this a little, but you know, all the stories and the tellings are a little bit different, but um, Mark includes some stuff that I think is really cool that isn't in the book of Luke. And so today we're actually going to do something that I don't think I'm going to do again, probably not in the book of Luke, where normally what we do is we read Luke as our primary text, and then we, if there's a big difference, we jump over to one of the other passages and talk about it, but uh, you know, one of the other parallel passages in one of the other gospels, but um, today we're actually going to go to the book of Mark to read this uh, this text because I think my favorite part of Mark that sort of makes the whole sermon and the whole text isn't in the book of Luke. So we're, you, we're, you can read this text in the book of Luke um, there in Luke chapter 9, but we're actually going to read this. So if you have your Bibles turned to Mark, uh, jump over to Mark chapter 9, we're going to be in verse... Um, in verse 14 here. And today we're going to be talking about faith. And this sermon is going to sound very familiar to you. And you're probably asking yourself, wait, didn't we just do a sermon on faith and talk about this? And when we talked about Jairus and the unnamed woman and we compared their faith? Yeah, yeah, we did. And we're basically going to do the same sermon today. And we'll, we're going to do it a few more times in Luke. Um, and we're talking about what is faith and how do we grow in faith? Why though? Well, um, why are we going to keep doing the same thing over and over again? Well, it's like free throws in basketball, although right now talking about basketball hurts my soul. Um, after the worst officiated game that I have ever seen in the history of the NBA, where it wasn't proven that the ref had money on the game, uh, and the Lakers beat us by three, and then we lost the other, you know, um, I'm filming this Saturday, so we lost yesterday um, to Memphis and the Warriors are out. So I wrote this before, uh, but anyway, it hurts my soul to talk about free throws. But let's talk about Steph Curry. He was like a 90-something percent free throw shooter. The guy's amazing. Um, how did he get good at free throws? Did Steph Curry come out of the womb and, you know, just all of a sudden he could shoot 90%? Well, maybe. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but how did he do it? He just takes a lot of free throws, right? This is how any NBA player gets good at free throws. Muscle memory, just doing it over and over and over again. It's why, and um, I've done this too because, I, you know, back when I could move my back, I was pretty good at basketball. Um a good free throw shooter can do it with can make a shot pretty regularly with their eyes closed uh, because it, it's muscle memory. Well, the same is true with faith. And um, we have we all have this wicked and like a um, wicked and sinful hearts. 
uh, within us. And those wicked and sinful hearts are constantly preaching falsehoods to us. And one of those big ones is the way to impress God is to do stuff for him. And the way of faith is to work hard and to earn your place in the kingdom of God. And then he will love you. And so what do we do to counter that? As our wicked and fallen hearts are preaching this to us, we have to preach back. And one of the ways we do that is we preach the truth louder over and over and over and over again. Muscle memory, building that muscle memory in our souls. And so that's what we're going to do today. And that's what we're going to do a lot of the time that you hear me preach here at the porch. So um, turn to uh, Mark chapter 9. We're going to start here in verse 14. And... um, Yeah, we're going to go through this passage. It's a little bit longer in the book of Mark than it is in the book of Luke, and there's some details here that I really love. Um, Again, this is one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. Verse 14. Do I say that a lot? I think I say that a lot, don't I? This is my favorite part of the... Well, anyway, there's a lot of good parts of the Bible. Anyway, verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. So... Um, Jesus comes down from the mountain. We talked about the transfiguration last week. And uh, he comes down from the, the Mount of Transfiguration, and what does he find, right? Well, you know, I'm re- just recapping real quick. He goes up there. He, 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 his divinity shines through in front of Peter, James, and John, and Elijah and Moses show up, and they start talking about um, uh, his coming death and resurrection and all of that stuff. And um, so then he comes down the mountain and there's these the disciples here. This is the scene that he finds walking down the mountain. Um, and we didn't talk about this a lot, but on the way down the mountain in Mark's telling and um, in Mark's telling of the transfiguration story, they're asking Jesus a bunch of questions about what just happened and that sort of stuff. So they're kind of in the middle of this. They come down and they find the other nine disciples, right? The ones who weren't with Jesus up on the mountain. So all of them, but Peter, James, and John. Um, and it's kind of this hectic scene. So there's these scribes there, and we're actually going to talk about some scribes in a couple of weeks uh, who um, who are portrayed in a much more positive light than the scribes we see here. But scribes, we don't really have this um, in our culture. The closest thing to a scribe in our culture is sort of a, like a, a professional theologian or somebody maybe who teaches at a seminary, right? And so these these scribes were sort of the lawyers of the Torah, the lawyers of their religion, right? They, they studied um, the, the text very carefully. And so these scribes now are, are, there's this big argument going on, and the scene is absolutely hectic, and there's this huge juxtaposition here with the calm and peace and um, perfection of the Mount of Transfiguration, and then they come down the mountain, and they come down to this horribly... Um, uh, chaotic scene, right? And so at the bottom of the mountain, people are arguing. And these people, though, are amazed to see Jesus. Everybody's happy that Jesus now has come down the mountain. They probably showed up with the other nine disciples, and they wondered where he was. And they had they'd come to see Jesus, but all they found was his nine disciples um, and these and some scribes arguing and not getting along. And I love the part where it says that the people were kind of excited to see Jesus. I once had a friend, and I think I may have said this before, but I had a friend who was not a believer, and he was sort of antagonistic to the faith, and um, who had grown up in the church. And at one point he said to me, man, like, I read the things that Jesus says, and I really can't stand him, but uh, there's something that I must be missing, because everybody in the text who knows Jesus uh, always, not everybody, but the big, the crowds of people are always flocking to him, and there must have been something about him that all these people loved that I'm missing when I read the Gospels, right? And we had a big conversation about that, but that this is one of those that he's talking about, right? This is one of those areas where 
these crowds are flocking to Jesus. So look at verse 16. What's this all about? And he asked them, uh, what are, uh, sorry, he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So he comes down the mountain. He sees this argument. He's got his disciples and the scribes and the crowd is there watching these two arguing. And so Jesus steps in and he, he, at, just, he just straight up, he asks everybody, what's going on here? What's this argument all about? And they answer, verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and it becomes rigid. So he, um, he, uh, Jesus asks everybody, like, okay, let's, you know, like a parent who walks in a room and kids are fighting. Okay, what's happening here? And one kid starts to sort of tell the story. That's kind of what's going on here. Now, um, Notice how when Jesus does this, uh, neither the scribes nor the disciples are the ones who answer. It's the dad. And again, like this is like when a pa- you know when a parent walks in to that room and the kids are all arguing um, and fighting. And, you know what's going on here? And then everybody looks at the ground. And usually, who speaks up? Well, okay, we had three brothers when I was growing up. So usually, the one that didn't do anything, the innocent brother, which was usually my older brother Chris, uh, would speak up and explain what's going on here. And that's exactly what happens here, right? These th- there's this big fight going on, and this one guy who didn't really do anything wrong now is he speaks up and he explains the situation to Jesus. And the situation is this: he has a son, and his son is being oppressed by this demon. And you know, we've talked a lot about um, demonic oppression. And um, so if, if uh, we're not going to spend a bunch of time talking about what this is exactly, but it's the, the forces of the enemy, right, are oppressing this guy's son. And Luke adds the detail in his telling, right, where it says that it was his only son, right? So the, these demons are oppressing my only son. And um, this guy's probably not a kid anymore. Um, he's probably like more like, I don't know, teenager, early adult at this point. A lot of scholars think for various reasons I'm not going to get into now. But the dad describes it. It makes him mute. It gives him seizures. He foams at the mouth. He becomes rigid. Now, as you're reading this, you're probably thinking to yourself, isn't this just epilepsy? Aren't these just dumb country hicks from the first century who don't know anything about medicine and who used leeches on people and that sort of stuff? So they're very superstitious, and they think that they see epilepsy, and they think, oh, man, that that guy must be oppressed by a demon. Um, And that's what a lot of the more sort of liberal theologians, theologically liberal, I don't mean, I'm not talking politics, but theologically liberal um, scholars and um, theologians kind of think, right, that these first century rubes don't really know anything, and they just, you know, they just, everything they can't explain, it's the supernatural world. But Mark um, specifically tells us what's going on here, and that it's more than epilepsy, right? And again, this isn't going to be a sermon on Uh, demonic oppression, but uh, Mark lays it out. This kid is oppressed by this demon, um, and that oppression is having physical manifestations. And we've talked about other areas in the book of Luke where they specifically, like Luke will say, and some people he healed from their diseases, and some people he, um, you know, healed from the oppression of demons, right? So these guys, they didn't just think everything that happened was demonic oppression. Usually what they thought was demonic oppression was demonic oppression. Um, And Again, this is what what's happening to this guy now, this boy. It's very telling of what the enemy is up to and what um, what demonic oppression like this is all about. It's sort of a it's a living picture of how evil he is, right? What he does to these guys' bodies is what he's also trying to do to everybody's soul. And remember, we talked about this when we 
when we read the passage with the legion of demons and how Jesus let the demons go into those pigs and run off the cliff and all die to kind of give a living picture of that's what the enemy is up to. That's how much he hates you. And so uh, we can see this again here by looking at what these um, this demon is doing um, to this guy, to this boy. And so the dad now, he's been dealing with his son um, and he probably at this point thinks his son's not going to live for very much longer. And so the dad somehow hears about Jesus, this traveling preacher who's not like these other rabbis, and he has the power over demons, like in the synagogue, he casts out the demon with just the word of his mouth and all that stuff. And he's the one with the real authority over these demons. And so he thinks, man, this is my chance. And he hears that this preacher is in town. And um, so this dad, who's probably a faithful Jewish man, right, brings his his demonic oppressed son to the people that everybody around is saying this guy has been sent by God. And so verse uh, the rest of verse 18, so he, he had explained it the last sentence there in verse 18. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Okay, so put yourself in the scene. This dad shows up where he heard Jesus was hanging out. Remember, there's no Twitter. Jesus can't tweet like, hey, I'm at the foot of Mount Hermon now. You know, like anybody needs demonic oppression, help come to, you know, like somehow like rumors float around and this dad hears, okay, this guy's in town or, you know, he's around here somewhere. And so um, the the dad takes the son uh, looking for Jesus and he shows up to the last place he heard Jesus was and he's not there because he's up on the mountain glowing and being all divine and everything right and um so this dad now is super bummed out and he finds but the 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 bright spot is he finds the rabbi's disciples who he also heard had been traveling around and casting out demons and healing people right that jesus was training these guys to be little versions of him and they had already had this successful ministry all throughout this area and so um, the dad, super probably bummed because Jesus isn't there, but he explains what's going on to his disciples. Um, and uh, <laughs> the, I kind of thought of an illustration here. It's like a friend of mine who's an opera singer um, from my old church there. And at one point, I think I heard the story when I was a kid. Um, this guy was a um, an understudy in the opera for Pavarotti when Pavarotti came through to see, sing. Um, if you remember Pavarotti and um, the whole, you know, it was a big deal, right? The whole crowd shows up to the opera house here in San Francisco um, to see Pavarotti sing. And uh, then Pavarotti threw a fit because the M&Ms in the dressing room were the wrong color or something. There were pretzels in the mix or whatever it was. I don't know why he threw a fit and he just left. And, um, you know, total diva, like opera singer diva. And so my friend then has to step in and sing for Pavarotti. Like this is a big moment in his life, right? This is a, a massive thing. He gets to fill in for Pavarotti. And it, they, they announce it over the loudspeaker, you know, 10 minutes before the show. The part of blah, blah, blah will be played instead of Pavarotti by John's friend. And then everybody booed and hissed and people left the theater. And right, that like my buddy, that was like the highlight of his life was everybody booing him and stuff. Anyway, this guy wants Jesus and he shows up, right? He wants Pavarotti and he shows up and uh, my buddy from the old church is there, right? Bummer. But like my friend, these guys are professional opera singers, right? They're not half bad. They've cast out these demons before. Look at a little bit earlier in the book of Mark. It says, so they went out, like we read this part in Luke too, and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and had healed them, right? So these guys, this isn't, you know, I mean, these guys are the understudies, but they've done this before, right? Like my friend knows how to sing all the songs Pavarotti sings. I guess he's just not as good. But anyway, so this guy shows up and he gets the disciples. 
And you can imagine what happens, right? Put yourself in the story. So these disciples are still probably on a high from their missionary trip, and they're still probably feeling a little bit arrogant. And, you know, let's pick one. I don't know. Andrew uh, gets up, and he goes over to the guy, and he commands the demon to come out of him with whatever magic phrase Andrew might have used. You know, Wimgardium Leviosar, right? No, Leviosar. It's a Harry Potter joke. Anyway, and uh, the man with the demon, right, he just laughs at him and he falls to the ground and he keeps shaking and foaming at the mouth. And Andrew goes, what did I do? That's how I did it when I was walking around, right? So then one of the other disciples, you know, comes up to him and says, nah, let me give it a shot. Like, Andrew, you chump, let, let me show you how to do this, right? Maybe it was the other Judas, not the, or maybe it was Judas, the Judas, right? And so goes over and, you know, does the same thing. Like, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of him. And nothing happens and the, the demonic oppressed man starts laughing again. And all of a sudden the disciples start to sweat. You know, so a few other disciples try it, right? Bartholomew, nothing. Philip, nothing. The other Judas, nothing. And somewhere inside, they're starting to panic. We, we've done this before. We know how to do it. What's wrong? And I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where something's not working, um, when it's something you think you know how to do and, and people are around. It's a frustrating feeling. And these guys, they can't figure it out. So these scribes are there, and the odds of the scribes being there to follow Jesus are pretty slim. You know, I'm most likely these scribes are there. We don't know this for sure, but most likely these scribes are there um, to kind of evaluate Jesus's ministry and to look for sort of chips in the armor and ways to knock this ministry down. And so the scribes start making fun of the disciples. I thought you knew how to do this, right? Ooh, look at me, Mr. Big Demon Casting Out Guy. Can't do it. And then in anger, right, the, the disciples fire back. Well, at least I've cast out demons before. When was the last time you cast out a demon? And then the scribes, you know, your mom casts out demons. And then the disciples start taking a hold my earrings or whatever. It's go time. And then right at that moment, um, Jesus comes down. It reminds me of The Sandlot. You guys know The Sandlot, the, the greatest sports movie of all time. And in The Sandlot, there's a scene where the two groups of boys playing baseball in the summer are arguing, right? There's the the main group, the Sandlot gang, and then there's like the the richer, upper middle class kids with their fancy uniforms and everything. And they're all arguing and, you know, like one of them, they're trading insults. You know, you bob for apples in the toilet and you like it. <gasps> you play ball like a girl. Ooh, you know, that whole thing. I think that's kind of what was going on here. And that's right at the moment where Jesus comes down from the mountain and he walks into the middle. And so What's his reaction to all of this as this is going on? That's verse 19. He answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus says, Oh, faithless generation. Who's faithless? Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's echoing the prophets. He's not saying this generation has no faith at all. Nobody in this generation has faith. That's not what he's saying. He's using this expression to say, you people right in front of me, all of you guys, you're not acting in faith right now. And he's probably talking about both the scribes and um, who are probably there to discredit his ministry and the disciples who are trying to cast out demons in their own power. They're too confident because they've done this before. And so he starts to ask these fancy rhetorical questions, which is just a fancy way to say, oh, this again? It's the, the same sort of um, response that I got from Melissa one time when um, we got a new oven installed in our house. And like eight months after the oven was installed, I had to call her. Um, I forget where she was, but I called her on the phone and I said, hey, how do you turn on the oven? Um, and she just went, oh, this again, right? And she thought to herself, man, I'm a really bad marrier, right? That's kind of what Jesus is saying here with these rhetorical questions. Uh, this again, this faithlessness again. So let's see what happens. Verse 20. 
And they bought, brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed in the boy. He fell to the ground, rolled about, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So they brought the boy to Jesus. Let's see if Jesus can cast out this um, this demon. Uh, and when Jesus, when the, the 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 guy, the you know teenage boy probably with the demon comes to Jesus, he goes nuts because this demon now knows his time of oppression is short. And this happens a lot, right, with Jesus is the demons go nuts around him or around his followers. And then the beginning of verse 21, and he asked, and Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? So Jesus now asks this probably for the sake of the crowd, right? Um, Just to show how amazing this miracle is going to be. He wants to build the faith of the crowd. And so he asked him, how long has this been going on? Um, So everybody will get the seriousness of the question. And then um, in the second half of 21, and he said from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So the dad answers Jesus's question. And actually, he more than answers Jesus's question, right? Not only how long has this been happening, but what's been going on. And just from reading this, you can almost hear the urgency in this father's voice as he's thinking about his son and his answer. Since he was a kid, this has been going on, which is why most scholars think he's older now, like probably a teenager or older. Um, uh, but anyway, even worse than this, right? It's try, it tries to kill him. And so the request of the father is, if you can do something, right? If you can, have compassion and help us, right? He says us. He so closely associates himself with his son, right? As this is happening to his son, this is happening to the father as well. Verse 23, and Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. I love that. If, right? There's another translation that says this. What do you mean, if I can? I love that. That's Jesus's response. You brought him to me, didn't you? Like, why would you bring him to me if you didn't think I could actually do something about it? Now, let's look at the father's faith, though. Faith, though. Um, he has enough faith to bring his son to Jesus, but he's not 100% sure that Jesus can do anything. And Jesus' response to him is, all things are possible. Now, again, context when we're studying the Bible is one of the most important ideas. And this is one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible, right? If we have enough faith, God will basically do whatever I want him to do. With enough faith, I can control God. And you guys know I always rag on Joel Osteen and guys like that, but they've built whole ministries on this principle. And what this verse really means in context, though, is important. What it means is God is powerful and can do whatever he wants, and faith believes that to be true. And so Jesus now is challenging this father do you believe that God can do anything? Do you believe that I am sent from God? Is basically what he's asking. And look at the response. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And this time I actually mean it. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So that section is the part that's not in Luke. Um, that's in the book of Mark, which is why we're, that verse is why we're reading this in Mark. This is one of the coolest verses in the Bible, right? He cries out. He, he, um, uh, the the father cries out, which is like he screams. It's an emotional outburst of real raw emotion. This man's faith in Jesus is not some sort of an academic exercise where he sits down and sees if he can he can check which boxes are true. Right? Like I'm reading this book that John and Kayla, uh, this series, this Mistborn series right now that John and Kayla um, by this guy Brandon Sanderson. It's like this fantasy novel. I know. Um, Steven likes this guy too. But anyway, there's a dude in this this um, 
this book named Seized, and he was like a, um, I'm not going to get into this whole thing, but basically, at one point, he's trying to decide which religion is true. So he gathers all the facts about all the religions that he can, and he just, he writes them on pieces of paper what these guys believe, and he goes through one by one, and he eliminates which ones can't be true. Oh, this one's inconsistent, you know, and it's almost like an emotionless um, task for this guy. And I haven't read the end of the book, so don't tell me what happens with this guy. I'm still in the middle of the third book. But anyway, like as I was reading it, I was thinking, man, that really is the opposite of this father, right? This father's faith is this, it's emotional. It's, it's, he has this outburst. This is real life. And what he says is this, he says, I believe, which is true. He does believe his actions have proved it so far. He brought his son to Jesus to be healed. So there's at least, um, there's at least a sliver of faith here, but you know, and he also, he asks for help from Jesus, right? This is what he does. Um, that word, I love that. So he has this sliver of faith, but he says, help, I need more faith, right? That word help is this Greek word, bo, uh, boatheo, which it means um, to run. Let me read this to you. It means, what is it? Where is it? Oh, yeah. Uh, to run to the cry of those in danger, right? So like, it's not just like, oh, can you help me? Um, you know, move uh, on, move my apartment on Saturday or whatever. Or can you help me? You know, hand me that box over there, something like that, right? That's not what it is. This is the like the word from. Um, uh, this is a word like help. I'm drowning, right? That's the kind of right. This is what's going on here. So he's like, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I love that. Help my unbelief. John Calvin said this. The the 16th, 16th century reformer. He said this. I had to do the math in my head there real fast. Someday, I say, I think I do that every time I talk about John Calvin. I should finally just write that down. Um, anyway, he declared, this is what Calvin said, he declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is not one of us uh, that does not experience both of them in himself, right? Everybody who's a real follower of Jesus understands what this father's talking about. I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, I have this faith but my faith isn't perfect. And that's what um, one commentator said this, the true, um, that true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. So the, the paradox is the more that you grow in faith, the more that you're going to see how weak your faith actually is, the more your eyes will be opened. And that's what's happening with this um, father. This guy gets it. He's He's asking for more faith because he's asking, and he knows he's asking the one who can actually give him more faith. And so this shows that this sliver of faith that this guy has is resting in the right place. It's resting in Jesus. This faith isn't some sort of generic, as long as you believe with all your heart kind of garbage, right? This is real faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's placing his faith in Jesus. I believe, but help my unbelief. One of the coolest verses in the Bible. You guys should probably go out there and get that, right? I have a verse tattooed on my arm. If you want to get this verse, uh, get a verse tattooed, this would be a good one. You could put it right across your cheek right there. Um, It'll look, it'll look real classy. All right, verse 25. So what happens? I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. So the crowd now is getting bigger and bigger and they're starting to like, you know, like an unruly mob, almost like a crowd. And so Jesus is like, all right, we just got to get this over with. 
And so he shows his authority and his power. He rebukes the spirit. I command you, right, which is like a military term. Mark leaves no doubt in the way that he wrote those verses that Jesus is in absolute control here. And so this demon, after some resistance, it leaves the boy. And the boy falls down and he appears to be dead. And just like a great movie where there's this suspenseful moment, everybody thinks this boy is dead. Um, And just for a second here, put yourself in the scene and imagine what it's like to be the father here. And imagine that you see the boy fall down and you think he's dead. And the father's stomach drops. Like Jesus didn't heal my boy, he killed him. It didn't work. But then Jesus goes over, he picks the boy up, and he's okay. And imagine just the relief that flooded over the father, right? As, as his boy stands up and for the first time in a normal voice says, Dad, is that you? Right? This man had asked for faith. And what a better way to grow this faith than to see Jesus working up close. This is an amazing miracle. Verse 28, let's keep going. Let's read the end here, the last two verses. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, this kind can not be driven out by anything but prayer. So they get to the house where they're staying or whatever. And the disciples ask him, what did we do wrong? Like, we've cast out demons before, right, Jesus? Like, we did this on our trips when we went out two by two. Like, what's going on here? And so Jesus says, well, this kind, and what he means is not like there's different kinds of demons and, you know, only Jesus can cast out certain, that's not what he means, right? What he means is he just means demons, um, right? But when he says like, these demons can't be cast out with, it's kind of a weird translation. This is a very literal translation, but basically a, a good way to put this is demons can't be cast out with it by any other means but prayer. And so um, Matthew tells us, right, basically it's because you weren't acting in faith when you were trying to cast out this demon. And so what Jesus is really saying here is, look, you can't cast out demons in your own power. Prayer connects you to God and God casts out demons. And you can't do this without faith just because you had done it before. And these disciples probably were very confident in their ability to cast out demons. And so they tried to do it without faith, right? Without, uh, Without God doing it. They were trying to do it on their own. And I'll tell you, um, this doesn't just go for casting out demons who are oppressing people, right? This goes for all areas of ministry. I have done this as a preacher where I thought, man, that was a really good sermon. I'm pretty good at this. And then, you know, after the sermon, I didn't get any notes or nothing and nobody really seemed to care. Then I've had sermons that I thought weren't very good and a ton of people came up to me. Man, that really touched my heart. Or man, I've really been wrestling and thinking about this. And I can tell the difference when I'm trying to do this in my own power and when I'm trying to teach in the and let God speak to you guys through his text, right? And so that's then how this text ends. The father's son is set free. The disciples learn a valuable lesson about faith and prayer. And so let's take a look at the three main characters in this text. And that's how we're going to, that's how we're going to end. So first let's look at the faith of the father. I want to say a few things about the faith of the father. He brought his son to Jesus. This is the first thing. And so that shows trust. Um, Again, I don't know how he heard about Jesus. We don't know. Maybe Uh, He saw him teach at some point, or he heard about him, and he thought to himself, this guy is clearly sent from God. You know, maybe he'd seen him heal other people, maybe uh, whatever it was. So he brought his son to him, hoping for healing. And so his faith was um, in Jesus enough to act. What he, and it's, I'll say this too, it's not just desperation, although being desperate in your sin is an important part of faith, but um, Like some people might think, well, maybe he didn't really believe in Jesus, but maybe he just thought, well, what could it hurt, right? Well, anyway, if I was sick and some traveling TV preacher was holding a thing at the Cow Palace, 
I wouldn't go, right? I'm not going to waste my time. I don't really believe that guy can do anything. And so odds are this guy really thought somewhere deep down that Jesus could uh, Jesus could heal him, heal the son somehow. Like there was at least a little bit of him that believed it or he wouldn't have brought the son. Um, and so his little sliver of faith influenced his actions. And that's a very important part of faith is that real faith drives what you do in real life. Um, I'll, I'll give you an illustration from when I was in college and I was taking a course on preaching and um, there was a somebody, one of my textbooks had this story in it where um, the author of the textbook was telling a story where he said he was, I forget the exact details of who the author was. I think he was, I don't know, maybe, I, anyway, I don't know who the author was in this story. But at some point there was the, the there was a, another preaching class and in that class the, the professor assigned um, his uh, students preach with impact, right? That was the assignment. Um, and so um, the, the, one of the students, um, he was given the topic of faith. Preach with impact, but talk about faith. And so he goes in the night before, and he breaks into the classroom or whatever, and um, he uh, hung up, he, he drilled a hook into the ceiling, and then he, he left. And the next day he comes in for class. And he's teaching. And he gets up in front of the class. And he does this whole um, uh, sermon, which was basically just a science lesson on the law of the pendulum. And the law of the pendulum is this, that if you hold, like, um, so if you, you, with his hook in the ceiling, right, if you put a chain, I don't know, like you take something and you attach to the chain and you pull it out and you let it go. As it swings, it will never swing back higher. If you just let it go without pushing it, it'll never swing back higher than where it started. So he gets into all this this math and um, calculus and all this stuff. And towards the end of his sermon, as his time was running out, the professor is getting really annoyed. And the professor says to him, what are you talking about? Like, what does this have to do with anything? And so the student, that was his moment. So he says to the professor, well, do you believe the law of the pendulum, professor? He's like, yes, it's a scientific fact, the law of the pendulum. So he goes, okay, come here. So the professor is like, plays along, okay, goes, he stands up there. And um, the student takes out of his backpack or something like a mini keg, you know, like a Heineken mini keg kind of thing, ties it to a chain into the hook in the ceiling. And he tells the professor, stand over here. And the professor does. Then he takes the, the keg, pushes it, holds it right up to the professor's face. Do you believe in the law of the pendulum? Yeah, I believe in the law of the pendulum. You sure? Yeah, he lets go. The thing swings, comes all the way back, and just before, theoretically, it should stop right in front of the face of the professor without hitting him, but the professor jumped out of the way. And so then the, the student turns and says to the class, does the teacher really believe in the law of the pendulum? And then the whole class, no, right? And the student goes, that's faith. If your faith doesn't affect your actions, you don't really have faith. And then he sits down, and I'm sure he got an F. But um, the father is a great example of this. His faith impacted his actions, right? He, he really believed in the law of the pendulum, right? He really believed this. And so because he really believed it, it impacted the way, impacted the way he lived in real life. That's the first thing about the father. The second thing about the father that I really love is he acknowledged his doubts, which shows humility. He admits having unbelief. It takes a lot of guts to stand in front of Jesus and say, I have unbelief in my life. Um, he knows that his sin has 
has marred him and has hurt him and has torn him apart. And so humility is seeing himself as he really is. And that's what he does. And real faith always creates humility. And then the third thing is he takes that humility and he asks for more faith to show his dependence on Jesus. He knows that his faith is a gift from God. And so in humility, he asks for more. What he doesn't do is just try to suck it up and muster up more faith on his own. He doesn't tell Jesus, okay, I'm going to go work on my faith. And then I'm going to come back, and when I really believe you can heal my son, I want you to do that, right? Then I want you to heal my son. No, he throws himself at Jesus' feet, and he says, I need more faith. I believe, but help my unbelief. One of the most important verses in all of Scripture. So that's the Father's faith. It's actually amazing. Let's look at the disciples' faith now. They assumed that faith moves in an upward trajectory throughout this life, and that's all that happens, right? They had already cast out demons before, and they think that they still can just because they had done it before. Um, there's a guy, his name's Mike McKinley, wrote a book called Am I Really a Christian? And he says this. Um, let me read this quote to you. Um, Does this mean that a true Christian's faith never wavers? No, it doesn't mean that. Should you conclude that you're not a Christian if you sometimes have periods where you struggle to believe? Again, no. Can a genuine believer sometimes struggle with doubt? Yes, many have and many, or sorry, many have and many do. So your faith is not going to be just an upward line on a graph where you're continually growing your entire life. Your faith is going to waver. Um, and that's one of the reasons I love when, as a church, right, is taking communion together. Communion is this reminder every week of the grace that we need uh, and the way that all of us are coming together and saying, I, I'm not good enough for this. And this communion reminds me of that. This is not about me. This is about Jesus. So that's the first thing with the disciples, right? They assumed that they were just going to get better and better and better and their faith would skyrocket. The second thing, though, that's kind of good is that they learned from their, they wanted to learn from their mistakes, right? At the end of the passage, they come to Jesus. What's wrong? What went wrong? And they let Jesus teach them. And so again, just like the father, they did what the father did just kind of in a different way. They took their unbelief to Jesus as well, which is another great example with these disciples that we can follow. So we have the faith of the father. We have the faith of the disciples. The third main character in this story, though, I mean, we could say it's the boy or it's the demon, but I'll say the third big character is Jesus himself. What's the picture of Jesus that we get from this story? Well, the wrong picture of Jesus and of just God the father is that, right, that God is this angry schoolmaster in the sky who demands perfect faith. Um, it's like how in sports, great players, right, make lousy coaches because they have very little patience and very little grace with people who aren't as good as them, right? And when, you know, um, well, why don't you just, you know, do what I used to do, which was, you know, amazing. And then people are like, yeah, because normal people can't do that, dude. Right? Well, in the section right before this, we saw Jesus exalted in his transfigured form. And you would think somebody like that should demand perfection. But that's not the picture that the Gospels paint. He's not Michael Jordan yelling at somebody because they can't jump as high and shoot as well. Right? That's not what he's doing. The right picture of Jesus is he's the gracious Savior who pulls people along in the process of faith. Right? He doesn't toss us aside when we don't measure up because the truth is on our own we'll never measure up. And that's kind of the point of the gospel. That's kind of the point of Christianity. We don't have to measure up because he's measured up for us. And that's the gospel story. I love that Jesus didn't say to the dad, you're right. 
you don't have a lot of faith. And that's too bad because I really wanted to heal your son. Come back when you've crossed over the threshold and your faith is strong enough for me to heal. What did Jesus do? He healed the son. And in doing so, he built up the faith of the father. And do you see that the father went home with a faith much stronger than what he left with? And he loved Jesus more than when he got there. And so we have the faith of the father. We have the faith of the disciples, both imperfect. And the good news is that we have a gracious Savior who loved them both, didn't give up on them both, and helped pull both of them along in the process of faith. And so how do we, as members of the porch and as followers of Jesus in San Francisco, how do we apply this truth to our own lives? Well, let me give you a few just quick application points and then we'll be done. The first one is this. Don't let periods of uh, doubt derail your faith completely. Jesus is gracious with our process of growing in faith, right? Look at um, the main, like a, a famous one is Doubting Thomas, who refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he saw him in person. And when Jesus showed up with Thomas, he wasn't angry. He just said, hey, yeah, look at my hands and my side and my feet, right? It really is me, Thomas. Like he, he was gracious with Thomas. Um, or Abraham is one of these guys whose faith went up and down and up and down, and God was constantly moving him along. Or John the Baptist. Are you the Christ or should we keep looking for another one? And Jesus was gracious with him. And so, right, um, we have to understand that God isn't out there waiting for us to have perfect faith. And if we don't, then he kicks us to the curb. That's, <clears throat> that's not how it works. And so <clears throat> when we have these moments of faith, of sorry, not of faith, of doubt, we have to understand that Jesus is the perfect Savior who wants to pull us along in those moments, right? He wants to help us. Second, what we should do with our doubt and our struggle is take those doubts and take those struggles to Jesus. So whether you're a believer or you're just somebody looking into the faith and you're questioning, is this Christianity stuff true? That's one of the big lessons that we have here is to take those things to Jesus. The Father did this. The disciples did this, right? Help my unbelief. How come we weren't able to cast out these demons? So how do we do that, though? How do we take these struggles to Jesus? Well, let me give you three ways. And again, I always say this, that there's no magic formula to growing in faith, right? But how do we take these doubts to Jesus? Well, we pray and we talk to him about them. We read scripture and we, we read the Bible and engage in sermons and that sort of stuff. And we try to grow in our knowledge of scripture where God talks to us. And the third thing is community. Don't be afraid to talk to each other about struggles with faith. Um, we, and to talk to me and leaders in the porch, right? This is what we're here for is we're not here because we're all got it figured out. We're here because we love Jesus and we're figuring it out, right? And that's what church should be really good at is helping people process through these things. Third is in your life, you should be working towards perfect faith, but not expecting it. So just because Jesus is gracious with the doubt and gracious with people who are struggling doesn't mean that we should be satisfied with a little bit of faith. And it doesn't mean we should almost like, oh, I'm more godly if I'm struggling with faith. Um, the truth is faith is like in and out burger, right? You can never really have too much of it. <laughs> right? Is that just me? I just eat way too much in and out. Anyway, um, faith can grow, right? And so we should constantly be trying to grow our faith. Um, the theologian, um, you know, 20th century theologian A.W. Tozer said, faith is not a once done act, but a continuous gaze at the heart of the triune God. That is one of the best definitions of faith that I've ever read. It's a continuous gaze at the heart of the triune God. And the more you look at Jesus, the more you look at God and rest your life in him, the more your faith will grow. And then the last um, 
the last sort of application point, the fourth one is, look, when you are in those moments where you're trying to grow and you're struggling in faith, ask for more faith. It's okay to ask for faith because, again, and we did this whole thing when we talked about Jairus and the woman, the unnamed woman, and we compared their faith. It's okay to ask for faith because even the faith you have is a gift from God. right? Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then where does that faith come from? Right, The rest of the verse. It's not your own doing. It is a gift from God. And so what, what faith we do have, it comes from God as a free gift, as part of the gospel. And so if we want more faith, it's not like, well, God gave me the faith I have, but now I really got to work it up and figure it out on my own. That's not how it works, right? We, we should ask for more faith, and we should be humble and gracious when we do so. And so I'll end with this. I think that praying, one of my favorite things to do is I, I have like um well, I have the attention span of a gnat, right? And so I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm the, you know, the the internet generation or whatever, right? We have the attention span of a gnat, and so uh, when I know it's hard to pray sometimes, and I, I'm, I can't be the only one that struggles with this, right? Where I'm praying, and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about the giants, and I go, wait, wasn't I just? Pr- How did that happen, right? And so one of my favorite disciplines to do is to pray the words of Scripture, to read through the Psalms, and there's actually a book called Praying the Bible, uh, Donald. Whitney, I think it, Whitby, Whitney, anyway, wrote this great book about it, and um, praying the scripture, and then just kind of going over it, and over it again, and that sort of thing, and praying through stories, and talking to Jesus as I'm reading the Bible, and I don't think that there is a prayer that I've done this, a a verse that I've done this more um, than this verse, right, Um, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief, I've been fascinated with this text since the first time I heard it preached in a church probably more than a dozen years ago. It, it, it blows me away, right? I want more faith and less doubt, and I'm glad that I have a Savior who A, puts up with what's lacking in my faith, and B, gives out faith as a gift. And so let's make that a discipline that we have as a church together, is to admit that we're not perfect and to ask God for more faith. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Lord, um, we... Um, We believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. You know, this is who we want to be. We want to be humble people like this Father who come to you with our doubt and with our with our struggles in faith. And you know, I know, Lord, that there are folks in our church who um, might be hiding when they're struggling, and I just pray that they would bring that out into the open and they would talk about it and process that with other church people. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you are. A gracious and a loving God in the way that you are not the angry schoolmaster in the sky uh, who gets upset when we we're not perfect, but that you are the wonderful the wonderful Savior and teacher who pulls us along in the process of faith. We thank you so much. We love you so much. Amen.